Malika. Not much. How are you, Chris? I am suffering a chest cold that my son, who doesn't even live in this town, when your kids go away to college, they're not supposed to get you sick. And he came back and visited me, <laughs> gave me a chest cold, and then now I'm I'm trying to get rid of it. How are you? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I am good. It's a beautiful day in Baltimore, and I'm enjoying all the sunshine. I mean, not right now, obviously. I'm in my dungeon lab. But after this podcast interview, I plan on being outside and soaking up all of the vitamin D. What's the, what's the temp there? You know, it's still not super warm. It's about like 56 degrees. I will say that coming from the Midwest, that feels like springtime. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, for listeners. I'm blanching because it's like seventy here. So I'm like, ooh, that's not warm. <laughs> I'm wearing short sleeves. Why aren't you? Oh, that's because it's fifty there. Okay, I get it. Yeah, fifty and sunny. Therefore, it is springtime. <laughs> As a Hoosier, really, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand. You understand. It's been really interesting because the weather has been flip flopping like it has been everywhere but the cherry blossoms in dc which is very close to where i'm at bloomed started blooming um just a couple of days ago and now it's cold again so <laughs> the poor nature is really struggling we have this fluorescence of pollen down here like the last week was it and it's it's like you have a yellow slime on everything. There's so much. <laughs> it just explodes windshields. It's like run riv, running down the river. And then all the all everything's popping down here too. And apparently we're supposed to get a freeze next week, but I'll be in the South Pacific. So yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, enjoying all of the field work. Yeah, exactly. Well, enjoying the uh paperwork. And the, yeah. the the kissing rings and, and all the things you do. I'm here. I'd like to collaborate. What would be of interest to you? And, and so on and so yes. forth. But all the critical things of doing research. We can talk about the hot mess of me another day. That's not why we're here. <laughs> what are we up to today? I see, so, I see a visitor in the waiting room. Yes, indeed. We have a great guest to talk to today. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Holdsworth, who is a postdoctoral research associate in the Meehan Lab. She is a researcher of mother-infant relationships, infant growth, and the early life origins of health. She received her PhD in anthropology from the University of Albany, SUNY, for her biocultural anthropological research into how mothers' unequal exposure to stress can affect maternal health, as well as contribute to small changes in infant growth through epigenetic mechanisms. Her current research identifies how maternal-infant dynamics and maternal stress may contribute to the variation in the milk microbiome. Uh, Liz and I share an advisor. Uh, Larry Shell was both of our advisors, a uh, generation or so separated. So, And he's actually on this paper, I realize, that we'll be talking about today, as well as the one that we talked to them about previously, both on camera at the same time. She was also our webmaster, our HBA webmaster for a long time. So she was part of the PR team. And it's really going to be awesome to have her back on here talking about, what's the article called? Maternal infant interaction quality is associated with child NR3C1 CPG site methylation at seven years of age. Say that really fast back to me. <laughs> Maybe another time. Okay. <laughs> Let's bring her in. 
Hello, hello. It's good to Hi. see you. It's good to welcome. see you. Welcome. Yes, welcome back to the podcast. How have you been? Pretty good. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a while since that first uh that first visit on the podcast. I think I I think that was for my first ever article. So it's been a while. <laughs> A whole, a whole lifetime, a whole lifetime. It looks like you're enjoying some great weather out in uh, Seattle right now. Also, I, I am not Seattle, Washington. No, I'm I'm in Pullman, Washington, which is okay. right up against uh, Idaho, and has been making some unfortunate news lately. Um, if Yikes. you Google Moscow, Idaho, you'll find out why. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Don't totally know what you're talking about. I'm a little embarrassed about my lack of West Coast geography. Uh, ask me anywhere in the Midwest. I can help you out. But anywhere in the Midwest or the Mid-Atlantic, other than that, <laughs> I am not the person to ask. But good to know. Well, you know, an interesting location for sure. Yeah, it was it was very new to me coming out here, too, because I'm also like from the East Coast and I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, Washington is all, you know, rainy and you yeah. know, Pacific Northwesty. But uh, I'm in I don't know if this is considered the high plains or not, but it, it is like a very um, kind of like arid and I mean, it's about, it's like about as cold as like New York, which is where I was coming from, but it's a lot more arid. Yeah. Like it really is much more of a desert just in, you know, humidity and everything. So like in the Palouse, which is, <laughs> I love talking about this. We're in the Palouse, which is <laughs> like, um, this geographic region that spawned these two land grant universities. Cause it's a really weird, like geographic region that is like this area that when like the like ice sheets like receded it left all like this yeah. look behind and then that like dried and then got like wind swept into these dunes oh. and but it's all like fertile Weird. soil which now is used for wheat farming and so it really looks it doesn't look like hills it really looks like dunes of wheat basically it's really crazy yeah well you've got your flannel flying nonetheless so you you're you're repping seattle for what a lot of people think of at seattle which is really niche uh and sort of ages me grew up on but hey (laughs) i i i sympathize i always geeked out on talking about why People in Albany had allergy problems that were similar to New York City because of the mountain range and the the, the way the Hudson River carried it up. So I'm I'm all about geeking out on geographic stuff that means almost nothing yes. to many of our listeners. <laughs> so listen, but no, I'm, I I I I'm gonna have all of my Seattle people now telling me I'm wrong. So apologies, Seattle people. I know there's lots of those uh, West Coast listeners. What have you been up to since the last time we had you on the podcast? I know we sent you the origins question, and that was Malika's cheat because she was like, um, it's been a while since that episode was aired. Let's just do it all over again. So feel free to tell us about your life from the cooling of the earth till now or catch us up, whichever you prefer. I guess I'll explain like really briefly. Um, I kind of got into um, anthropology uh, really from my first introduction to anthropology course in uh, undergrad. I went to SUNY Geneseo, which has a a really lovely um, anthropology department. I can't speak highly enough about it. You know, it's a really great like liberal arts 
public school. I was already slightly interested in, in anthropology. That's why I like, you know, signed up for the course, but didn't know much about it. Just really became fascinated with just like the really just the idea of like human variation and and how different we all are, you know, in how we behave and in our bodies, like everything that just really captivated me and, and kept me going through obviously all of this. You know, obviously, since then, I went on to pursue my um, master's and PhD at University at Albany. So since my last appearance, I did get my PhD. So that was a big one. Yeah. So I finished that in 2021. Um, and right after I graduated and until now have been in a postdoc at Washington State University, working with Courtney Meehan on some uh, research related more to like milk composition, milk microbiome, some infant um, gastrointestinal microbiome. Um, and just some some really interesting projects more around like maternal infant uh, relationships and especially milk composition, because that was sort of an, an area that was kind of integral to some of my research questions is, is sort of how the information about the environment can be sort of passed across generations. And I think milk is probably a really important component of that. And I hadn't really gotten into that research yet. So this has been a really nice opportunity to, to learn more about like milk composition and the milk microbiome, things like that. That's amazing. And it sounds like you've been exploring a lot of new techniques also, lab methodologies and statistical techniques. I'm sure that that has been a very rewarding part of moving into postdoc world. Yeah, well, I um, I don't know how I managed to do this to myself, but I chose <laughs> two mechanisms that are a bit complicated for analyzing statistically the microbiome and the epigenome. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's constantly um, constantly a process of learning new methods. I mean, people are developing new methods to analyze, you know, just statistically analyze both of these um mechanisms in seriously there's like a new method coming out for like the microbiome i swear every single month you know constantly learning new things constantly kind of challenging myself which is which is nice i think also in my postdoc one thing that i have been learning more about that i think is important is also kind of better data sharing practices. I mean, I'm sure you have also noticed, but, you know, some new rule changes coming down from like uh, um, NIH um, as well to sort of like specify more like data management and sharing policies increasingly expected in, in publications. It's also kind of forced me to be a little bit better in, in my whole process of data analysis of, you know, making sure everything that I'm writing is, you know, replicable and understandable and um, kind of building those into my workflow. Fun, fun stuff. <laughs> what I recall from last time was you had looked at a data set um, to, to do some analyses and, and you're doing something similar here. But as you mentioned, you're looking at the epigenome and, and, and the I see exactly what you're talking about. You're laying the foundation for more work by doing some really, really solid investigations of previously collected data. So the article, brand new, hot off the presses. I don't think it's been slated for a paper issue yet, right? I don't think so. Yeah, just digital version right now. So we re I'll read it again because it's such a fun uh, title to read. 
Maternal infant interaction quality is associated with child NR3C1 CPG site methylation at seven years of age. I did it better that time. So let's talk, just let's just jump into what is CR3C1 CPG gene site and what is methylation? I guess we should start with that. Sure. So uh, methylation is a epigenetic process. It is the addition of a methyl group to sort of like the, the top of DNA, which basically tells DNA replication to essentially not read that section of the DNA. So it, like any epigenetic process, it changes how genes are read without changing the underlying DNA. So it changes gene expression is one way to put it. Yeah, it's just one one of a few different epigenetic mechanisms. Um, it is probably the most commonly studied uh, just because of some uh, really uh, useful advances in the field of uh, sequencing methylation um, that have made it, I think, probably more accessible than, than things like histone modification. I remember this is like going back in uh, like intro biology, learning about methylation and a way that it had been described as like a freeze ray gun. Like it's like freeze ray, freeze ray. And then the, you know, the DNA replication just skips it over and keeps going. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy too. Yeah. I think also one thing that maybe gets, I don't know, maybe lost in the conversation about methylation is that it is, well, obviously it is a, a very normal process. You know, we're normally looking at it in terms of like, oh, an exposure and then this outcome with methylation, but methylation is is just like one avenue by which the body just sort of says like which parts of DNA should be active in which tissues and at what time in development. So it's, it's just like a, a natural way of uh, just sort of like directing, you know, things like um, just different different activities in different tissues because obviously you don't need all of your dna in every single uh tissue sort of to be active so why should we care about this particular methylation site yeah so uh i was looking at nr3c1 the some of the sites that are part of this gene nr3c1 codes the glucocorticoid receptor so it's the the thing that binds to cortisol and because it binds to cortisol, it is this uh, pretty critical step in the feedback system of the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is, you know, commonly referred to as a stress response axis because it is certainly activated by stress. I also want to note that it is also in some ways, like a metabolic pathway, it is also activated by things like exercise and it, cortisol is involved in the release of energy. So I was interested in functioning of the HPA axis more broadly for a few different reasons. One is simply I, I am interested in these questions of how stress can possibly be sort of transmitted across generations in infancy and thinking that, you know, methylation of epigenetic regulation of the HPA axis might be this mechanism in, in this pathway of transmitting stress across generations. This article was a part of my dissertation. One of my other questions in my dis dissertation was the role of epigenetic uh, sort of direction of the HPA axis in growth. So I was also trying to disentangle sort of like exp 
exposure to stress and then impacts on growth and thinking again of this, you know, epigenetic direction of the HPA axis as maybe being this key mechanism. And again, that's because the HPA axis is also involved in things like releasing, um, uh, releasing stored energy and has been suggested to be, you know, involved in growth. So that's why I was interested in this gene uh, more broadly. And then I looked at individual CPG sites just for a few different reasons, but part of it was just to see if there's kind of sensitivity at individual CPG sites. One thing that is notable from this study is that uh, I I found just one linear relationship with just one uh, CPG site and maternal infant interaction. So that's not a lot. I was looking at seven CPG sites to begin with, the ones that had the most variation. And so it's not only one CPG site with a linear relationship is not that much, but I think it's kind of notable which CPG site I found to be associated with maternal infant interaction because the CPG site, it's it's uh, like CG271, 22725, I think, something like that. But that one has come up in a few different studies as being associated with um, things like severe exposure to trauma. And I think most notably in, in one of one of Connie Mulligan's papers, I think with Nicole Rodney, I believe, was uh, found to also be differentially methylated in, in I believe that was cord blood or, or placental blood. So can I can I interject yeah. and ask a sort of big picture? Because you're you're connecting lots of dots with lots of yes, other right. podcasts. But no, you're good. <laughs> but what's but I'm I wanna uh, it's been so long since we first talked. I, I, your dissertation. What was the arc of it? You're looking at maternal infant health and child growth. And so how does this fit into that arc? Basically, my big question in my dissertation was how the social emotional environment shapes sort of unequally distributes exposure to stress among mothers and how that could possibly, one, become embodied in mothers, and then how that can be transmitted across generations to influence, or I would say maybe it's more appropriate to say between generations, to influence infant um, growth or childhood growth and trying to identify whether you know, the epigenetic programming of the HPA axis was a mechanism connecting these two factors, sort of stress in the first generation and then childhood growth. So that was kind of my my overarching idea. Uh, some of this kind of arose from, well, you know, I I have been studying with Larry Shell. So a lot, a lot of this is influenced, obviously, by by um his work and and his knowledge um and so some of this was came from like James Tanner's work uh which you know the concept of growth as a mirror where you know the differences in growth within populations reflect differences in um the environment basically in in the conditions in which people live um and so i was thinking certainly that these differences in growth could reflect differences in exposures to stress in the environment, not on like an individual level, but just, you know, how our our environment just really differentially distributes stress across people. Not everyone is exposed to stress as sort of an equal amount. And so uh, I was kind of trying to, to tease out some of those factors. 
my analysis of the ELSPAC data set, so that's the ABLE and Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children, that, that made up about two-thirds of my dissertation. And then my other analysis was based on work that I had done with immigrant mothers living in an area of upstate New York, sort of a more rural region, to more qualitatively and, and um, descriptively assess how uh, stress was sort of unequally distributed and, and how it was mutually kind of reinforced based on conditions in the environment to, to again, affect um, both women's reported stress and their own uh, cort uh, chronic cortisol production. So I measured that in here. But yeah, so, and I, I did want to look at some of the path, like the epigenetic pathways in that group of people. Like I wanted to answer all these questions with that study, um, but it, it was just essentially too small of a sample to really answer some of these questions on the epigenome where you need a much larger sample. Um, so that's why data sets like the Avon longitudinal study of parents and children it's, are it's ingenious. It is. It is. It's a it's a great way to be able to test these questions with a big gigantic data set and then build off of it so then you can then build the next big data set. That's mm -hmm. incredible. I I do I want to talk more definitely about your process and how you were collecting the data and you along with me as also someone who graduated in 2020 and postdoc around that time we had very unique experiences of doing the latter ends of our dissertation in a covid experience and I definitely want to talk about that but before we get into that I'm I want to know kind of if you if let's say the New York Times came up to you and was like okay you know, uh, Dr. Holdsworth, based on your dissertation, what do you think the big takeaway is for moms and babies? Based on based on my dissertation, the big takeaway is that uh, we should be creating more supportive environments for, I would say, broadly caregivers, but also, you know, specifically mothers. Unfortunately, it seems like sometimes the only way to get people to care about women is if we say that it affects infants in some way. Really what I was trying to to draw out in my dissertation was a, an argument that we create the environments in which women and, and mothers and just caregivers in general live. And many times they are environments that just create more stress and are not supportive and not helpful this isn't, I'm sure not a surprise to anyone, but that, you know, this can certainly kind of contribute to how, you know, the next generation kind of grows and, and develops. Um, so basically, so with creating better environments for caregivers. Yeah. With, with that in mind, then I want us to be careful that we don't stigmatize moms for your findings, because there was a relationship here without, we don't have a lot of background on the moms, but we see a, a relationship between I guess their effective parenting style uh, or uh, some some measure and, and this site. So could you tell us uh, about those findings? Sure. Yeah. So if we're just looking at the, the relationships from this article. Yeah. So what I found was that kind of more warmer and more positive interactions between the mothers and infants were associated with a decreased methylation at this site, the one that I referenced earlier should say in this population really the the measures of maternal interaction were really just ranging from like very very warm and like very close and uh you know positive one way or another to 
neutral and hesitant and less warm. So it's still like very much overall just, you know, nothing really all that negative. We certainly are not talking about like trauma or neglect or anything here. It's just slight differences in how people are interacting with their with their babies. It's also just one snapshot in time. So it's really just this measure, an observed measure of mothers going over basically a picture book with their baby in in a lab. But the sample is like 15,000, 16,000, right? So I mean, we're, we're not talking about a small sample. Well, in my sample, it's only 114, I believe. Well, now I have to check. I always forget my numbers. Um, yeah, 114. And that's just because the overlap of people who had those assessments, that the observed um, assessment of interaction, and the epigenetic data was only 114 people. So it is smaller than the general um, LSPAC data set. So yeah, I mean, I think... First of all, I do want to say all of these are like totally normal, you know, interactions with their infants. So I'm not, I certainly don't think that there should be any really value judgments made about um, parenting behaviors or something here. Really, I think the the takeaway for, for, you know, moms or any caregivers is just that this is just demonstrating that infants are quite sensitive to the social emotional environment that they're in to the social interactions that they're having and i think right now i it, there's really no evidence from this study that this is bad in any way or that any of these changes to the methylation at this site are are bad at all so it's just one way that kind of contributes to variation in infants Again, it's just, you know, completely normal variation. This assessment is only looking at mothers and infants because that's just what they chose to look at. Obviously, infants are interacting with many other people in their lives. So if we're talking about how infants are particularly sensitive to their social emotional environments, we're really still only looking at this tiny little section in their social environment. They are, I'm first sure, like interacting with other humans in their lives, whether that's, you know, fathers or grandparents or siblings or uh, care caregivers at daycare. They're interacting with a lot of people as well as just sort of a, a more broad social environment, which if I uh, want to make a pitch for more anthropological research. I think that that's definitely an avenue that we should be pursuing is a, a much better like holistic assessment of infant caregiving ecology and that association with um, methylation and, and infant development because a lot of research right now is just on mothers. And it's just because people choose to look at mothers, but that's obviously not the only person in an, in an infant's life. Most definitely. I, I really love that you, that you underlined that valence should not be attached to these findings. As we talk about doing our science and communicating it, our work is so relevant to health and health policy and practitioners and making sure that people understand that, you know, just because you're a little bit awkward with your baby doesn't mean you're ruining them forever is a really important point for young moms and young families as a whole. So I think I, I really appreciate that you 
you know, underline that and emphasized it because I think it's really important. Um, but I, another question I had is, this is really building on a lot of foundational developmental plasticity literature. Um, you know, talking early stuff with rat, rat moms and rat babies, rat pups, uh, and the licking behaviors. Like this feels like really classic psychobiology. And this area of research, I feel like has really exploded. Just I'm thinking back when I was an undergraduate in college and just that things have, have changed in the past 10 years. And so from your vantage point, as an early career researcher, where do you see the opportunities growing? I know we talked a little bit about how like microbiome analysis is changing every month, but where do you see the opportunities? Where do you think that the, the field is moving towards? Honestly, I think that there's still so, if we're talking about just developmental plasticity broadly, there is so much more like research that we have to do. I think the you know, some of the advances in sequencing have certainly allowed us to gather more data on these mechanisms that are, you know, obviously very important in plasticity, the microbiome and epigenome, certainly. There are also other mechanisms. You know, they generate a lot of data. One of it, one of the problems is that just each individual, you know, sample generates a lot of data, right? You have like, uh, it's not, you know, necessarily epigenome wide, but certainly, you know, the the more recent like um, methylation array, that's most common. I want to say it's 850,000 uh, data points, basically. And that is a lot of data to parse through and make sense of. Um, and so I think we're still very much in a stage of just trying to understand what all of these data points really mean. And I think that's also very true for the microbiome. I think we're also still at a point where we really need to characterize just variation across humans. Um, there's a really good, as an example, um, my postdoc advisor, Courtney Meehan, had sort of developed a study, the INSPIRE study, if you want to look it up, to at least, you know, start to be able to characterize the range of variation or similarities in the milk microbiome across populations, because we really did not have a good idea of how different it might be in different environments and different populations. Um, and that, I think, was a, a really important and like foundational piece of work in the microbiome or milk microbiome specifically. And I think there's uh, certainly a lot more need for that sort of research. And again, a place for anthropology to really help do some of that comparative work across populations. Um, because I I really, I, I think a lot of that is still very unknown. And then also I see a lot of uh, interest in teasing out some of the environmental determinants of developmental plasticity, which is what developmental plasticity is in response to our environmental cues. And so there's a lot of work, I think, expanding on some of those factors too, which are really important. What's next for you? I'm curious how the microbiome and epigenome come together. Yeah, well, so am I. <laughs> my my research questions are, you know, what they have been, which are really, you know, trying to tease out how uh, developmental plasticity really operates in infancy, what it responds to in the environment and how it impacts infant 
growth and and development. And uh, yeah, so I'm certainly interested in trying to tease apart how the microbiome, so particularly the infant gastrointestinal microbiome, interacts with the epigenome, if it does, or if they're like totally independent, you know, factors in developmental plasticity, um, as well as how, you know, milk composition and the caregiving environment also can interact <laughs> with uh, uh, each other to provide cues about the environment to shape developmental plasticity. So I feel like if um, if my if a theme of my dissertation research was trying to boil things down to sort of like individual component parts, um, I'm trying to in my research going forward, sort of trying to build up some more of these um, interactive, you know, factors to better acknowledge that these are, you know, operating together, you know, an infant is exposed to all these things together, and their body is developing in these ways together, and just be okay with the <laughs> complexity of that. Um, so I have, um, I mean, I have some projects planned, uh, but still in the very early planning phases. So I don't know if I'll go into too much detail about it. I want to go back to, we had talked about, to be a little bit meta here, about your own development by environmental determinants <laughs> and the experience of, of finishing your PhD and starting your postdoc and doing work with such specific biomarkers that are likely very impacted by this thing we all know as the COVID-19 pandemic and how that, you know, how that process was for you and how you feel like it's shaped your research and how do you think it's potentially shaping your research as you're moving forward into more senior roles? Just, just my experience through COVID basically. Yeah, <laughs> it's been really hard. It's been really hard. I think I'm only now really realizing how like world changing that experience was um you know i'm thinking about going into teaching classes again i haven't taught any classes in my postdoc um i am likely to be teaching classes soon again and just like the experiences that students have had um in their education through COVID and how it has just like shaped how we how we interact with people. I mean, you, well, online you won't be able to tell, but here, here you can tell. I'm just like working from home, and um, you know, prior to COVID, I don't think that would have been quite as common. Most of our meetings now are on Zoom, and some of that is to like facilitate. Um, some of our collaborators who are not in town, but some of our collaborators are in Moscow. So they're just, you know, right, you know, maybe 15 minutes driving. And from what I have heard, I have not experienced it, but from what I have heard, you know, the meetings would sometimes be in person, you know, maybe like every semester or something, but get together. But now Zoom is just so easy. <laughs> We're just like, everything's on Zoom now. But, you know, besides that, I think the most significant way that sort of like COVID affected my trajectory was just I ended up pushing back my graduation a year, <laughs> which I think was wise. Um, 
otherwise yeah i mean it it i don't know if it made everything harder or if it's just hard to write a dissertation anyways but it was it was a little tough to write a dissertation during lockdown surprisingly um and yeah i mean yeah i i do think that there's going to be some really interesting patterns of especially thinking about you know infant development and child development I think it's still like very unknown what sort of um cascading effects there could be from really just a lot of like the social isolation um in early life or like maybe no effects right like we really don't know but it's such a weird experience early in life and uh and it's still kind of happening, right? I mean, like, especially if you uh, went through as like a child, went through like remote education and like elementary school, it's changing how you're interacting with school now and how your your teachers are responding to children coming through who went through that experience. You know, it it, it is still very much happening. And um, yeah, it is. It is a weird, weird era that we lived through. It's it's still happening, and and it'll happen again, as as anthropologists and epidemiologists have have been telling us. So, uh, hopefully, these changes are preparing us, as we completely ignored them last time around. Yeah, I'm not too optimistic. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, humans, we be human. Uh, so the last question is a two parter. I'm going to add one that Malika doesn't know about. So we're getting ready for the big meeting in Reno. We're trying to bring back the HBA talent show. When you participate in the talent show, what talent can we look forward to seeing from you? That's part one. I'm going to give you the second one so you can think about it. Okay. Um, because when I post on Instagram now, I have song choices to go along with your your video. So what what's your favorite song or what's your song choice for this episode? I'll give you a second to think about that one while you answer the other one. I I'm like not capable of thinking of like song names on the spot. <laughs> it's like literally impossible. Okay, it'll be up to me then. Or you can email me later. It just came to me yesterday when I was posting stuff. So no harm, no foul. We'll stick with the talent show because that's not embarrassing at all. Oh, um, yeah, I well, I have like an easy one for me to answer. Um, I play cello, so I would, I would do, I, I would absolutely play cello in the talent show. Um, the only challenge is getting bringing a cello there. to Reno. Yeah, <laughs> my child plays stand up bass, so I've seen the oh, cellos God, and I worse. understand. Yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. I did take it on a plane once, but it was not fun. Maybe we can see if anyone in Reno has a spare cello and we can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll have to make a road trip out of it. I think I could probably drive to Reno from here. I don't know how far. But there's a lot of... It would West be a gorgeous West. drive. It would, yeah. Is there a cello song that you like? There's a um, Brahms Sonata. I don't remember what number it is. Possibly two. Okay. But that one I've I've played a lot of. And uh yeah, it's pretty that sounds know. like a nice non controversial accompaniment to a video or a little a clip, but not a video. A picture. It's not this yeah. isn't rocket science. I'm just overthinking the PR side of things. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I want... any good cello piece and I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Well, I think that, you know, you playing cello would be a great accompaniment to the many people who are going to garden and uh, knit. <laughs> so a whole experience. I love the idea of seeing someone on stage gardening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very popular talent, apparently, uh, for human biologists. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, citizen science, so, you know. There you go. Elizabeth, it's been wonderful Excellent. having you on the show again. It's been great to talk to you. Um, those uh, listeners, you can find out more about all this good stuff at uh, this on our SoundCloud site for the Human Biology Association, where all the episodes are. You can follow us on Twitter at, at HumBioAssoc, and I personally am at Chris underscore L-Y. And I am at, at Sky, S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. What about you, Elizabeth? Are you still tweeting? Tweeting? Apparently not. I have, I have a Twitter, and I was good about it for a while, and I kind of fell off. I'm looking up what my. I feel <laughs> like is your middle initial A. I feel like it's like E. Yeah. A. Holdsworth. It is. It is. Bam. E. Look at that. I remember your Twitter. Look at that. That's because you were our uh, in the PR team, so I probably tagged you seven hundred thousand oh, yes. times without you knowing. <laughs> Thanks again. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye.